Thank you, Father Irvin. It really is a joy always to come here to Emmanuel Anglican. I'm very grateful for being invited here again. Um, I have the privilege of having two of the Psalms in this series, and more than that, Father Aaron let me choose which one those would, those would be. And I chose two Messianic Psalms, and one of them was Psalm 45 we did last time, and if you weren't here, what's strange or wonderful about that Psalm, it, it stands out, there's something different about it. The extra in that Psalm is, we're used to thinking of this, the Messianic promise, the promise of the anointed king to David. Uh, he's going to have the son who's going to be the king who reigns forever is what Psalm 45 reminds us of. Half the psalm is about his bride. Is that Christ is not single. I mean, Christ, his, his bride is the church. And the church plays that special role. You know, Jesus talked about the theology of marriage. He says, they're no longer two but one because God has joined them together. So we, we study that in Psalm 45 of saying, we understand that message. We pray that to love Christ is to love his bride, the church. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 110. And with Psalm 110, we also have a unique perspective, so we're going to look at that unique perspective. What does it bring to this that no one else brings? It just comes beautifully in something. Every time I pray it, I just love when I come to the words, uh, it's just amazing because they're nowhere else like this. And here they are, these, there they are in front of you, and you see these words. And also, what lessons? I think there's some vital lessons that Psalm 110 holds for us today. Let me begin, I have to begin with this psalm with a sidebar. Okay, so we'll start, uh, sidebar is, this has a unique pride of place among the Messianic Psalms. Because Jesus himself ex accepts that it is. He tells us it's a messianic psalm and actually teaches us something profound about the Messiah from it. His teaching is so important it appears in all three, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And remember what he says is he'd, uh, he says, but he said to them, how can you say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Those are the first words of today's psalm. David calls him Lord, how so is he son, his son? And we might think, well, gee, that's sort of a mysterious passage, one of those, let's go on to something else. You know, we have, it's, we have to do an electionary or something. But the, the authors of the gospel thought it was extraordinarily important. Jesus thought this was a profound point about who the Messiah was. And his argument was this. If you look in your Bible, it tells us that this psalm, Psalm 110, is a psalm of David. This is David speaking. And the Lord says, well, gee, if David is speaking, we know that a father always has seniority over his children. He will always be senior. He will still always be their father. No matter what they come into, he will always be their father, their senior. And he said, we know that this is speaking of the Messiah and saying the Lord God said to the Messiah, who's called my Lord. David is saying the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, how can he be his son? And they were baffled. How do you answer? How can? And of course, we know the answer from Jesus is he's also the son of God. He's not just the son of David. He's the son of God. So having said that sidebar, that's again that Jesus particularly comments that verse. Let's look at the unique perspective of Psalm 110. Again, we know that in the Old Testament, there were two, two types of roles or three people who could be anointed in the Old Testament. Sometimes, not always, a prophet would be anointed. It happens, but doesn't always happen. Always a king was anointed. That was part of becoming a king. You were anointed. Also, priests were always anointed. We talk about all the ritual for anointing priests in, in the book of Exodus. So what we're told, so the two, the two roles, so kings and priests were both anointed. We have this promise of anointed one, but it couldn't be the same person, right? Because we know, as we've said before, that the line, the promise was the line of David, right? A king would have to come from that line, from the tribe of Judah. But priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. 
So it appeared that these were two, like railway tracks, these two would never meet. There would always be two anointeds. There would be an anointed king, you know, the son of David, the tribe of Judah. There would always be anointed priests. And what we're told, we're surprised when we run into it. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Suddenly those tracks converge. Suddenly we find that Christ will indeed be the promised son of David, but he'll also be priest. How? He will have a priesthood that doesn't come from his fatherhood. It will come from the, that, his human father. will come from the fatherhood of God himself. As son of David, he will be king, the anointed king. As son of, as son of God, he will be the anointed priest. He will be the Messiah, the one who alone combines both of those anointings. Now, when David had this psalm, wrote this psalm, this is all in the future. This is a prophecy of the future. What we don't want to forget is this now has all come true. This psalm has been fulfilled. It all took place at Calvary. Right? We know that what was the victory of the Messiah, the victory, the victory of the king, there would be eternal victory, but it was victory over sin and death. That battle was won once and for all on Calvary. There's no more, it's simply, it was won, clear out, Christ, it, that, that, uh, that battle was won. Also, we're told that he also reconciled that one-time offering forever reconciled with God. He was the priest who reconciled forever. He opened the path to the heart of God at that woman that will never be closed. So he was, prof, he was, he was king and he was priest at that moment supremely. And we're told that at his ascension, this psalm particularly is fulfilled. So Mark says at the end of his gospel, how does he end his gospel? So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Whereas it says in the book of Hebrews, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But not only is he seated there as king, he also is standing there at other times as our advocate. The book of Hebrews talks about him being in the inner sanctuary, but also something we may not have noticed with Stephen. Remember, Stephen is being martyred. What happens? He looks into heaven, and what does he see? He sees Jesus, but how does he see Jesus? Jesus isn't seated at the right hand of God. He's standing, because priests stand. It means Stephen's battle wasn't Stephen's battle. It was Christ's battle. It was Christ who was fighting that battle in Stephen. He was the advocate. He was the priest fighting that battle with him. He wasn't sitting and watching. He was active and engaged in that. He was the advocate making it happen. So he's seated at the right hand of, of the Father as king, the ruler of all. Even now that kingship has been established. And he also is standing at the right hand of the Father as our advocate for us. Now, that's not the end of the story. We are called to share in that priesthood. We're called to share in that kingship. We forget that what it says in, in 1 Peter, we're told, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Royal, having to do with kings. The king, royal priesthood. So we aren't called to just admire Christ's victory. We are called to share in it. We are called. Now, it's true, as Father Aaron tells us, uh, that we're, not, we're in the already, but it's not yet. We'll know the fullness of that at our resurrection, but it has already begun. Christ is reigning now. It'll become more and more from glory to glory, but it has already started. We're told that we should be actually, this isn't just admiring what happened to Christ. This is our story. We have been called to enter into that rule with Christ. And we also have been called to enter his, into his priesthood. 
to join into that. All of us, that's why we say the priesthood of all believers. All of us as Christians, by our baptism, have that power to enter right directly to God, to the power, to the heart of God. We have direct access. That, remember when Jesus dies, the veil of the, the temple is torn. We can walk directly through Jesus into the heart of God. As a matter of fact, the church fathers like to call us, it's a pun in Greek, you know, we talk about Christ, the anointed one. Christians were called like the, the little anointed ones, like mini Christ, you know. And the idea was because they emphasize that we have everything that's true of Jesus is true of us. We share. It's not independent. We share in what's happened to Jesus. So far, so good. We know the victory has been won, but are we actually reigning with Jesus in our own lives? This is the promise of there. It's there even now. But does, actually, does that actually describe where we are in our lives? Can we say that we feel that victory? We're actually reigning with Christ. What does that mean? That victory, over, that victory over sin in our life, we're no longer slaves to sin, and that joy in all circumstances. It doesn't depend on, on situation. The peace that passes understanding, that unique witness to the world that cannot be denied. How can these people being martyred have this joy? Is that how we live? Or maybe that's not how we live. So we know we're called to live in that, into that victory, but for a lot of us, all of us in some sense, that's not true. What's gone wrong? And the same thing is true about we've been called to join our prayer to Jesus, the one who actually walks into the inner sanctuary. You know, the heart of God is wide open. But instead of rushing in, we find ourselves hesitating or even resisting. We're not men and women of prayer. What, what's wrong? How are we not taking advantage of these promises, which are for us a royal priesthood? Well, let's look at what the things that might be keeping us, some of the things that indicate here that we are not reigning with God, that God's rule is really not taking hold completely in our hearts. First of all, we'll start with resentment and unforgiveness. Resentment and unforgiveness, why? Because they tell us something. You see, the, the heart of the spiritual, look at what's happening to Stephen when he's martyred in his success. Where is he looking? He's looking at Jesus. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Peter. Who cannot, how can you not love Peter? So Jesus is walking in the, in the water. Who else would think to say, Lord, can I do it too? Command me. Who else would think? Isn't it wonderful? I wish, you'd wish you'd think a lot of that. He said, well, command me to come out. Sure. He comes out, and what happens? He actually walks on the water. He's like God. He shares in the power of Jesus by, walk, by walk, looking at him, walking in. He's walking like God on the water. When does that stop? Scriptures tell us precisely. He saw the wind. Instead of looking at Jesus, he started looking sideways. He started looking elsewhere. That's the moment where he began to, to drop. You know, Stephen in his victory is looking square at Jesus. Okay? Uh, Peter, when he's walking on the water, is looking at Jesus. When he turns away, well, he, begin, he, begins, he begins to sink. So, let's put it this way. Resentment and unforgiveness are the sure, they are the canaries in our spiritual mind shaft that we are not looking at Jesus. There is no way we can be looking at Jesus and feel resentment and unforgiveness. It's just not possible. And we have two stories I'd like to share. Like last, last week's gospel was a beautiful example of this. We take Martha and the Martha and Mary story, and we forget that Martha is one of the great heroes of the New Testament. You do know that Martha has, along with Peter, the best single statement of faith in Christ in the whole New Testament, and in much more difficult circumstances. You remember the story with, with Mary and Martha, they, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, right, they, the brother and his two sisters, they lived together in Bethany, and they were personal friends of Jesus. They tell us, you know, people were amazed at the funeral that, you know, after which Christ came, his weeping, and look at how he loved him. They were personal friends of Jesus. Okay. So 
we, we have them there with, with Mary and Martha and the like. And Mary, after Brother Lazarus dies, we have a situation where, gee, Jesus doesn't, doesn't come in time for the funeral. He shows up late. I mean, really late, four days late. He's four days late. And remember what happens. She comes to him and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would never have died. Almost a reproach. You know, you could have been here. The scriptures make it clear Jesus was sort of dawdling for this purpose. You could have been here. If you had been here, my brother had, would never have died. But where does she go next? Even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. You know, and then he goes on. We say, you know, I'm the resurrection. Do you, I'm the resurrection of life. He says, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I know you're the Messiah, the one coming into the world. That's like Peter. We know you're the Messiah, the one anointed of God. Why I say this about Martha is to understand that a woman that amazing could fall to resentment. Because the episode we had last week, what happened? Jesus was coming to visit them. She gets all wrapped, in, wrapped up in, in, in the, the preparations. And what happens? She actually starts getting resentful with her sister. Right? She actually starts saying, Lord... Uh, it would be nice if my sister could help out. I sort of feel with that. I'm the guy who does the, the uh, dishes in our house. And so on big holidays or something, I have my, my four boys are like beached whales in the other room. I say, you know, uh, hello, you know, there's no law against people helping, you know, et cetera. But uh, my, my less than subtle irony seems to escape them entirely. Okay, so I can understand that. But the point is, Martha's looking sideways. And Jesus reminds her of that at the end. He said, you know, Martha's, he said, Mary's chosen the better part which is being with Jesus. She's remembered, she's kept her eye on what, what's really important. We have another example. So the resentment came, she had taken her eye off. She, she forgot the whole reason Jesus was there was precisely to see them. She got so wrapped up, she forgot the very purpose. But we have another person with resentment, a classic case, is the elder brother. The supreme example of, 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 of this in the, in the New Testament, I think. You remember the story of the prodigal son with the elder brother? Is we talk about the, uh, the prodigal son checking out Oh, it was the elder brother who checked out. Look what happens. His brother comes home, and what's the reaction of the elder brother when the father welcomes him? He gets the news, and he says, all these years I've slaved away for you in nothing. Where did that come from? Whoa! All these years. There's a, there's a bitterness and resentment that just comes out on the surface. You know, where, where did that come from? And the father has to point out something. He said, son, I've always been with you, Everything I have is yours. Where did this come from? He had taken his eye off that hole. He was so busy looking around at his, you know, at his brother that he had lost sight of everything. His father was with him. Everything his father owned was his. That wasn't good enough. He began looking sideways. So in our spiritual mind shaft, remember the canaries supposedly in the 19th century, which the ones would sense if you didn't have enough air, and you put in the mind shaft, meaning this is danger. I assure you, resentment and unforgiveness are truly the canaries in the spiritual mind shaft. Absolutely, the more we have, the more it shows we are looking everywhere but at God. You know what I remind you of that haunting words in Genesis? Remember, after Adam's sin, God is walking in the garden, and what happens? Adam hides himself, and God says, where are you? And he says, um, gee, we're, we're hiding because we're, we're naked. Who told you that? That was an indictment. Who told you that? How would you know that? And so the same thing is true of us. Every time I think God says, speaks to us with resentment and unforgiveness, when we look at our neighbors and their faults, we said, why are you looking there? Your, your eyes are off me. Why are you looking there? Why, how does that concern you? A second point. So again, our, when we have resentment, unforgiveness, 
the, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is this keeps us from enjoying that, that reign of God in our lives. We have to refocus. And the answer is not to try to, is to focus on God. It just reminds us that a person focused on God, the only thing that counts is my relationship with God, being God's man, being God's woman in this place. Nothing else matters. Other people, you know, that, that's for God. That's my role is to, is to be that person. Judgment, unforgiveness, resentment are the sure signs that we're looking elsewhere. How would you know that? The second thing we have is fear. We're fearful. That's a sign that something's gone wrong. And why? Because everything's possible for God. And there will always be enough energy and resources for what really has to be done, God's providence. So it can only mean that we're relying upon ourselves, that somehow we've turned this into a personal project, maybe with the best of intentions. But we've turned this into a personal project. Fear comes that we will be inadequate. Well, if we're simply if we depend on God, that's not an issue. It means, no, we depend on God, but on ourselves. That's why we're fearful, is it shows it's a good sign that we're relying on our own strength. Otherwise, this is God's problem, seriously. That's what faith looks like. The little boy who gives the five loaves, it's not his problem to feed five. It's, it's our, only, our only responsibility is to give back what God gave us. Nothing more, nothing less. It's God's problem to take it from there. God fills in those gaps. When we worry about the gaps, it means it's not about us. It's not about God anymore. It's about us. It's us, our sort of filling in the gap. What about discouragement? Why are we discouraged in our spiritual growth? Well, I think one of the reasons, you know, God, remember we have the image in the book of Exodus of, of, uh, of the manna. What are we told about the manna? You had to get it every day. You couldn't actually save it. You couldn't get it in advance. It was something you were simply going to have to get used to the fact you would need it every single day. You'd have to go out and get it. That's how grace works. There will always be plenty, but it'll only be for the moment. We can't store it up. And often I think what, what we want this desire for closure. We want the idea of, I have that behind me now. You know, I've sort of mastered this. I can move on to something else. That never happens, not authentically. So, you know, that's why Paul had the same issue. We're in good company. Paul said three times I came to God about this, this thorn in the flesh, saying, Lord, this is wrecking everything. He said, no. He said, what I tell you, my, my strength is made manifest in weakness. This is not a problem. Your having to rely on me is not a problem to be overcome. That's what life with me looks like. There's no shame in depending on needing God. So the only difference with needing Jesus is some people know it and some people don't. We all need Jesus. If we think we've overcome things, we will be surprised. Like Peter, he thought he was courageous, right? Until it actually happened. We will think we're in a place we're not. Another, a fourth thing would be confusion. Do we feel confused? I don't get it. What's going on? And confusion is a sign that we just basically aren't seeing the world with God's eyes. Confusion becomes because we still are taking the world's values. We're still estimating things. This, you know, what's going on? I don't get it in worldly terms. Uh, we have to remember that right at the beginning of the of Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus tell us? The Beatitudes. Things are exactly the opposite in his eyes than they seem to the world. Basically, what seems to be losers are winners to God. That's the fact. That doesn't change. That's the fact. He tells us his glory is on his cross, on his death on the cross. So why do we expect that would be different from us? So we often are confused, saying it's not working out. Why is the church in such difficult circumstances? Why don't people respect us, saying this is what victory looks like? Victory is how we deal with those circumstances in Christ. And what about our love growing cold? 
I'd say that's the fifth thing. Our love growing cold, that we're not living in that victory. So I think with our love calling growing cold, frankly, is remember when the children of Israel came into the land, they were solemnly warned. Moses again, Joshua, you have to finish the job. You cannot leave any of the, the peoples of the land in the land. They will be the death of you. You know, you need to, they need to go or inevitably they will take over. Of course, sadly, that wasn't listened to. And don't we do the same thing in our lives, though? Is we have this war against sin in our life, but then we have come to sort of a ceasefire. You know, or, or, or full-fledged full truce is what happens. We've, we come to certain points in our life with God, especially after we come to the Lord, but then what happens is we sort of leave things, well, this is good enough. And clear signs will say things like this, like, well, you have to understand that's just who I am. You know, that's just being human. So, you know, I understand other things. I got rid of the big sins, but, you know, after all, I'm a guy. Lust is sort of one of those things. It just goes with the turf. You have to say with it, well, gossip, what do you mean about that? Well, you never hear what's going around in the office. I understand, but that's one of those things. That just, that's just who I am. Is a lot of us have made a sort of truce with those things in our lives. And those things, that saps our spirit. The saints tell us that saps our spiritual lives immeasurably. So again, what are those five things we want to emphasize again is that we, we, that we risk taking our eyes off God. And we can always tell if we've done it. The resentment and unforgiveness are the infallible signs our, our focus comes, our power comes from seeing God. If we're looking around us, we're not seeing God. And that's how we can know. Not the seeing that sees the needs and service, the, the seeing that's judgment and resentment. We said the second thing we, we had was, was fearful. Again, God in providence always, always will prevail. If we're fearful, it must be because we're not tending to rely completely on God, that somehow we believe this is somehow up to our strength. Discouragement typically comes, we don't want to admit our weakness, and we'll always need God. It's never going to change. It's like being diabetic and having to take insulin. It's just a fact. There's no shame in this. And that's what Paul called boasting in the cross. And instead of being ashamed that we need this, we should be proud of it. I'm, I'm a Christian. I, 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 ha I need the cross. Without Jesus, I can do nothing. That's something to be proud of, not something to be ashamed of. There will never be closure in our lives. Are we confused? It's we haven't really given up worldly values. It really bothers us when other people think badly of us. We say differently, but it does. We really don't like the fact people think we've made a wrong, made it, are, are acting differently or inappropriately. And finally, love grown cold. It simply means we, we have allowed, we have, instead of finishing the job, we've made a truce with sin in our lives, and it will always grow and overwhelm. It's like weeds in a, in a lawn. It'll just take over the lawn. It happens. We think it seems innocent. Enough. Those small sins seem innocent enough, but those besetting sins. But left alone, they come over and take over everything. These are reasons that we don't enjoy the fullness of that promise of reigning with God. But what about what's keeping us from joining ourselves fully? What's, what's causing us to hesitate or resist when it comes to prayer? Again, the road to God's heart is wide open. Instead of running, why are we hesitating? Well, there are three things we could say is, Remember, we talked about that last week in, in, the, in, the, in the gospel. Jesus addresses the issue. The first issue, he says, is we might not know how to pray. That's why Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer. That's important. You know, what's the focus of prayer? Even when we don't use those words, it tells us the kind of things we would pray for. But the second thing Jesus did last week I thought was amazing is he gets right to the point. Is he saying, well, gee, there's more to it than that, isn't there? The trouble is we don't really trust God. Jesus is very frank about this. He said, let's admit this. We said, all the pious flock we have, we don't really believe God. We don't trust him. Remember the story? He had a funny story last week, he said, in the, in the gospel passage. He said, imagine a guy gets up in the middle of the night, his friends come and say, I need something. 
And the guy said, oh, don't bother me. We're all in bed and things. He said, I tell you, everyone knows he'll get up just because he wants to get rid of him. Everyone knows this. She said, everyone knows that. And yet we don't believe God would care for us at least that much. He said, everyone believes a friend who can't, could care less will do it just to get us off his hands, but we don't believe God who claims to love us cares even as much as that friend. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Remember, he said when he was teaching us about prayer, he went on, there's a reason why we feel that way. And the reason is the, the scandal to us of unanswered prayer. All of us in our lives have experienced this. Seemingly unanswered prayer, haven't we? We all have that. Who has not? We know in the church we've seen, we've been privy to miraculous healings, wonderful answers to prayer. But we've also seen people die. People we've prayed for with our whole heart have died. That happens. We all know things. We desperately prayed for, for, a, for a job that someone really needed. We've prayed for, you know, for, for situations where promotion, entering school, and sometimes those things happen, but sometimes they don't. And our prayers are just as real. In Church of the Resurrection, we had the experience that we had worked so hard, we so wanted a building, we, worked, we, had, we had to meet in the high school that they would got us off promptly half an hour afterwards and we couldn't have life during the week. Like what your situation here, we had this and it was very hard for us being as, as large as we were. So we thought we had the answer. We had a piece of land called the Wagner property and it seemed perfect. It seemed literally the answer to prayer. We prayed so hard and we, more than that, we prayed in giving. I mean, we gave sacrificially to buy this land. And imagine our shock when what actually happened in the end was the county board completely unexpectedly simply wouldn't give us a building variance, a building permit, uh, you know, the, the, rather a variance or usage permit. No one expected this. It was sort of a shock to us. So these things happen. So what Jesus tells us, and when he explains this, he says, he uses the famous thing, we say, what father, when his son asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? Meaning basically, look, you might think you're asking for a fish, but if it's actually a serpent, you're not going to get it. You might think you're asking for, you know, for, a, for a loaf. It's actually a scorpion. You're not going to get it. That God says no is, how God sa you know, is, is a profound way of saying yes to us. And we actually see that. In our case with the Wagner property, what we saw is actually it turned out that was a blessing. There was actually a building already built that the money we had that would only have bought the land was basically sufficient to buy the building. And if we bought the land, it would have been tied up. We would still be meeting in the high school trying to raise money for a building for years. So sometimes we're privileged to see that actually happen. But sometimes we're not. I don't know why my mother died of cancer at 62 and my kids never knew her. I can't explain that. It's still sad to me now. But I think when I see God, I will know. So there are some things we see. Here's why it was best for us now. There are other things we'll only know when we see God face to face. But Jesus tells us we can be confident that somehow it's always for the best. That's why we have reason to trust in God. I think there's a beautiful thing in Romans 8.27 that translated to me in basic English is this. I think it's a huge reason for hope is God answers the prayer we should have prayed. You know, we, we have to worry. I ask and ask for the wrong thing, etc. You don't have to worry. Ask for anything you want. God will answer the prayer we should have prayed. He talks about that's what the prayer in the Holy Spirit with the mind of God. God always answers the prayer we should have prayed. But something even more important is Jesus finishes, like last week's passage on prayer, he finished the passage in a strange way. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, and I think that's the issue, do we really understand profoundly what prayer is? You know, sometimes people who aren't botanists, if you ask them what's a flower, they will give you examples of flowers. You know, say like a tulip or a rose. That's not a definition, that's an example. Do we actually know what prayer is? Not examples of prayer, but what prayer actually is. 
And Jesus tells us, when he's talking about prayer, he said, you know, the one thing you should ask for, this is simply, this is in the context of prayer, the one thing that you'll always get exactly that is the Holy Spirit. And he says, now, he's not talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit himself. Why? Why would, why would it be the Holy Spirit? Remember in the Bible that we talk about breath is the symbol of life. Remember in Genesis 2, what happens? We talked about the creation of man. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's breath that gives life. Breath is the symbol of life. Well, the word for spirit is the word for breath in both Hebrew and Greek. What we call the Holy Spirit is the holy breath. It's the breath of God. It's the third person of the Trinity is God's own life. It's the life of God. That's why we say in the creed, the Lord and giver of life. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, the breath of God. So to receive the Holy Spirit is to receive an actual share in God's life. You know, Paul says in Romans, he said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. If we have God's life in us, that life breath of God, we never die. Even though it appears to die, actually, that life will, be, will raise us as it raised Jesus, if we share that life of God. So how does that deal with prayer? You know, we all receive the Holy Spirit already in our baptism. So why would we pray for the Holy Spirit now? If we're supposed to pray, Jesus said, pray for the Holy Spirit, it's the right thing. Well, we've already received the Holy Spirit. Why would we pray now after we receive the Holy Spirit? Or better, why did Jesus pray? You know, Jesus' life is filled with prayer. We see that especially in Luke. What does Luke say happens when Jesus is baptized? Well, you know, we, we know that the, the, the skies open, but we miss something Luke says. He says, it's as he was praying that the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit came upon him. In the transfiguration, where, where the Lord, remember, his, his garments turned white, we see his full glory with Moses and Elijah. What do the scriptures say in Luke? It says, while he was praying, his garments became white. You know, it's a, a classic thing. What did he do before the biggest decision of his life? You know, his, his apostles, the foundation of his church, you know, his body in, into the future. It says he spent the whole night in prayer. And Luke also tells us, we know the, the night of Gethsemane. But even everyday events, Luke just tells us, said, you know, Jesus was in the habit of going off to desert places to pray. Jesus was a man of prayer. Well, why would Jesus pray? I think it's an important question. Why would Jesus pray? I think we have our answer here. The answer basically is, think of breathing. Again, we talked about the Holy Spirit being the breath of God. It's the life breath of God. When you take a breath, inhale, what happens? You have to exhale or you die. We can't keep the breath. Unless we return the breath, we die. We have to return the breath to receive another. That's how life works. God gives us life and love, and the only way we can have that life and keep it is by returning it. We return the life and love God gives us. He gives us more. We breathe in, we breathe out. That's what prayer is. That's what theologians call it, the lifting of the mind and heart to God. It's simply all we do is we give back God what he gave to us. We give, he gives us life and love, we return it. No more, no less. That's what prayer actually is. And so the, uh, breath, breath, we tend to think of prayer as something incredible or something extra for people who are really spiritual. Quite to the contrary. You don't think breathing is sort of a nice extra like getting fit. You say, well, you know, getting fit, you know, if you don't breathe, you die. 
if you, the same thing is true of prayer. Is it's not an extra in the spiritual life. You know, that, that responding to God, responding to his love and his life with our own by giving it back to him is breathing. It's essentially breathing. Without that, there's no life. Now, something I think of, that analogy from uh, medical procedures, I've got to tell you, is I'm ashamed of this. I have what my old doctor used to call it white coat syndrome. I don't know if the other doctors call it that. But I just, um, I wasn't raised any doctors and things, so I just get nervous whenever I'm around them. And my blood pressure actually goes up. We see a white coat and I, my blood pressure goes through the roof. So this can cause a real procedure, a problem for me when I have pr medical procedures because my muscles literally tighten up. It can be really very difficult. And so you can only imagine the fun for my doctor and for me when I had to have my first uh, lumbar puncture, spinal tap. You know, this long needle going, that, that'll make you nervous. Okay. And, you know, uh, my muscles all tighten up. I still remember this as a perfect analogy for me. Remember how he said Jesus prayed at the great moments of his life, those great moments? He also prayed regularly. I remember still, he said, okay, knees up to your chest. He said, okay, take a deep breath. Those are those great moments in our lives. Take a deep breath. But it didn't stop there. It's through the procedure. He kept saying, keep breathing. Keep breathing. And I think that's really a beautiful analogy for prayer for us. At each of those great moments, we take a deep breath, but we never stop breathing. And that's something we always keep breathing. That's what, that's what prayer is like. Keep breathing. Now, in conclusion, God made that beautiful promise in Psalm 110. Again, that Christ for us would be this incredible victory. He'd win the victory for us and share it with us. He calls us to share his victory. We're running the victory lap with him. He also calls us to share his priest. That priest, the eternal priest, he opens the same way to everything he has with God with us. He calls us to enter into this. Even now, we're called to enter into his royal priesthood. So let us pray for special grace to set aside all those things that we've allowed to get in the way of, of the entering into the, of Christ's reign, into entering to that priesthood, so that we, like those children, remember on, on Palm Sunday, can shout out to God, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.